Welcome to Tax Break, a podcast on the tax law brought to you by the lawyers at Miller & Chevalier. I'm Steve Dixon, a tax litigator with Miller & Chevalier. We're pleased today to have the firm's uh, tax policy team on the podcast. As usual, I'm joined by my colleague, international tax and tax policy expert, Lauren Pons. And our listeners will be familiar with tax legislation and policy specialist, Jorge Castro, who's joining us again. And rounding out today's group is our colleague, Mark Gerson. Mark is a former majority counsel for the House Committee on Ways and Means and is the firm's practice lead for government affairs. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thank you. Happy to join. Um, as we have when Jorge has joined us before, we'll, part of what we'll do is uh, today is some prognostication. But unlike last time, when control of the Senate was still uncertain, we now know that Democrats control both the House and the Senate with slim majorities in each. So while our speculation about future legislation remains just that, speculation, it's at least slightly more informed speculation this time. The idea behind Tax Break is to provide listeners with some perspective on select tax issues that we think are interesting. We want to go deeper than what's in the tax press, but stay sufficiently high level so our listeners can follow along without a copy of the regs or, in this case, the rosters of the Ways and Means and Senate Finance Committees in front of them. As always, a disclaimer, tax break is not intended to be legal advice, and you cannot rely on it as legal advice. Its contents reflect only the thoughts and opinions of its hosts and guests. So before we start with any uh, prognostication, let's kick it off and talk about what actually happened in the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021. And one of the big business-related items that stands out from this act was the deductibility of expenses that were paid with PPP loan proceeds. And I know this was a subject of a lot of back and forth with the IRS and a subject of a lot of consternation by uh, by PPP borrowers. So, Mark, maybe you could kick us off and talk us about, uh, you know, walk us through what happened and and how things ultimately shook out with the deductibility issue there. Sure, Steve. Thanks. Well, obviously, the the Consolidation Appropriations Act was the latest in a series of COVID relief measures, um, the largest of which before it was the CARES Act, and a significant feature of the CARES Act was this Small Business Administration Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP, providing uh, forgivable loans to small businesses. Now, because the loans were forgiven, the IRS took the position that the expenses that businesses paid that were funded with the PPP loan proceeds were not deductible. And this, while kind of a technical reading of the code by the IRS, uh, came as a surprise to to Congress and to the PPP loan recipients who assumed that the expenses would be deductible. So they thought the IRS was imposing this unexpected tax increase. Uh, Secretary, you know, former Secretary Mnuchin, though, was very supportive of the IRS position, despite intense pressure from Congress to to change the IRS notice that disallowed deductibility. Um, and that Congress you know, really tried to force the IRS to change its ruling position, but was unsuccessful and had to resort to legislation. 
The legislation, of course, took a long time because you had the administration through Secretary Mnuchin opposing legislation to override the IRS notice and allow the deductibility of expenses. But ultimately, in the ultimate negotiation of the CAA, uh, Mnuchin and the administration relented, succeeded to Congress's will, and uh, there's now a specific statutory provision that clarifies that expenses that are funded with PPP loan proceeds are deductible even if the underlying loans are eventually forgiven by the Small Business Administration. And why was it that, why was Mnuchin and the administration, why did they initially sort of back the IRS in this in this back and forth? The, the view of the IRS and of Mnuchin was that there was kind of an impermissible double dip in that the loan was forgiven and that you also got to deduct the expenses. Uh, but clearly Congress had all along intended both that the loans would be forgiven and that the expenses would be deductible. And that was proven out by the Joint Committee on Taxation issued a letter explicitly saying that legislation clarifying the deductibility of the expenses would have no revenue score. But I think the, the Congress and you know obviously PPP loan uh, recipients were befuddled by how strong the administration was opposed to the deductibility of expenses because it would impose this unexpected tax increase on businesses that the PPP loan program was trying to help in the first place. Yeah, interesting. Um, and I guess part of this package was also there were some reforms to tax extenders and it included the creation of a new and, and steeper fiscal cliff. Uh, Jorge, maybe you could kick it off and, and tell us about what the fiscal cliff is and, and what it means to say that it's now steeper. <laughs> yes, um, thanks, Steve. Um, so, so one of the notable um, uh, per, um, pieces of of last December's tax bill was that it retroactively extended significant number of of tax provisions, as as, as they're called, tax extenders. And typically, they're focused around the re renewable energy space. However, they're they have um, they've they they've had um, uh, broad impact to a number of sectors. Um, railroad, um, uh, craft beverage. Um, so it's a long list. Um, and what happened was here for the first time that we've seen Congress has actually ex extended these provisions. Actually, some of them, um, a small amount, they actually made permanent for the first time, which is good for tax policy and good for tax administration. But the rest, they actually staggered and extended only for one year, two years, and five years. And for five years, they extended a couple of key provisions, such as the CFC um, look-through provision, new markets tax credit, the work opportunity tax credit, very prominent tax provisions. Um, um, they extended it through 2025. The interesting part for us following this tax policy space closely is that that's going to collide with other tax provisions that also expire in 2025, um, such as the reduction of the um, of the individual rates. Um, that expire in 2025, along with um, um, along with the 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 expiration of the 20% pass-through deduction as well, from also from the tax 2017 tax reform law. So that's also going to expire in 2025. So it's creating this big cliff, right? That apps, you know, that if Congress does not act in 2025 um, or 2024 in advance, um, you're going to have taxes raised significantly. Um, you know, we think just from past experience that 
that um, Congress is likely to act, right? I think that the pressure is going to be mounting for, for Congress to act um, in advance. Um, and, and I think that's good for those provisions that are obviously are going to be pending. What's going to be interesting also is going to be is what, what, what happens to those provisions that don't expire, that expire in 2022 or in 2023, right? Particularly around in the renewable energy sector. Are they just left orphaned, right? Um, is Congress going to act or not? Um, so that's going to be interesting to follow whether or not there's pressure on Congress to act um, on those provisions in advance. Does Congress let them lapse? Um, and that's going to be interesting to follow. So I think it's important to note that these provisions expire actually at the end of 2025. And so um, whereas there certainly could be action in 2024, a lot of times Congress, you know, waits to the last minute. And so the cliff could be at the, you know, as we face the year end of 2025, when you have so many provisions, the extender, you know, these significant extender provisions expiring at the end of 2025, plus all the individual relief from TCJA also expiring at that time. And and Lauren, what what does this do to? I mean, you know, dealing with tax extenders has become a kind of almost annual. <laughs> right. What what is how does this sort of staggering and and sort of general reform to tax extenders how does that change that annual process if at all? I think it just changes the timeline. I think that Congress will continue to act um, at the last minute, as as Mark kind of pointed out. You know, there's not much impetus for them to address things early, and so now we have a different timeline for different extenders. Some is a one year, some some are on a two year cycle. Others um, at the end of this five year period may be looked at for permanency um, or you know, another, some, some kind of duration of, of um, years for their extension. But I don't, I mean, we're not away from this extenders conversation. And with all extenders, I think the issue in the business community is a lot of times Congress doesn't act before the end of the year. And so it becomes a retroactive extension, which creates other issues for taxpayers um, because you can't really rely on anything being extended until it actually is. And even if it is retroactive, it does create some some headaches. And so I don't think we're going to get away from that um, that cycle in terms of and, and I think Jorge also raises an important point that um, you know, a lot of the really popular provisions were extended through the end of 2025, like the look-through rule in Watsi and the New Markets Tax Credit. But as Lauren mentioned, there are provisions that you know expire at the end of this year, at the end of 2022, and there may not be as much you know interest and political support for an extenders package because the really popular stuff that would drive a tax extenders package doesn't expire till the end of 2025. But there will still be some. I would assume there'll still be some momentum to to extend these other business oriented uh, packages at the end of the year, right? There will be, but they're decoupled. And so, you know, the strength was in the numbers. If you could put all of these in one package, you had a lot more momentum going into extending everything. And now that we've got three different groups of, of extenders, we've got one year extenders, two year extenders, five year extenders. I think Mark raises a good point, which is, you know, these these kind of one and two year stragglers, there's going to be push a push for them to be extended, but they've lost kind of the momentum of having all of them together, be considered together. Um, I will take a more optimistic approach 
And I will say that this could create, you know, and this, this is obviously important for, for, for the business community and for those following tax policy issues like this, is that this could create more vehicles, right? Um, you know, obviously the, the, the renewable tax incentives um, have a constituency in the Democratic mm -hmm. Party, right, which are now in control. And they can obviously, um, there could be, you know, they would could they could be more likely to try to move something, um, you know, um, more frequently. So I think, you know, from thinking about this from a tax vehicle perspective, um, you could have more vehicles, right, over the next couple of years. Um, so to the extent that there are taxpayers, businesses out there that are following provisions, you know, this could be more bites at the apple over the next couple of years. It could be, but they could also, you know, President Biden has made green energy one of his, um, yeah. or climate change, one of his um, primary policy topics to address in the coming years. And I think that there's also a good likelihood that these renewable energy extenders could be rolled up into some more long range permanent policy and take these off of the extender table altogether and, and uh, put them in something that's a little bit more cohesive and, and overarching, but we'll see. So one of the other uh, changes that the, the change in power in the, the Senate begets is a change to the Senate Finance Committee. So Mark, maybe could you talk a little bit about sort of what, what we expect to see and who, who, who's, who's doing what now on, on Senate finance? Sure. So, you know, very interesting. There obviously now is the change of control in the Senate, given that there was a 50-50 split with Vice President Harris having uh, the deciding vote. So Democrats take control of all the committees in the Senate. And so in the Senate, we now will have um, Ron Wyden, who was the ranking member, a Democrat from Oregon, will now be the chairman. And the Republican um, slot, the former Republican chairman, Charles Grassley, was term limited. And so he's being replaced by Mike Crapo, who's a Republican from Idaho. I think it's important to, to mention that the um, Senate is still organizing. There was a lot of debate about how the Senate was going to operate in a 50-50 universe. And so the exact composition of the committee has not been determined. And so we still may see uh, the addition of, of some members. There were also some Republican members of the Finance Committee that retired. Uh, Mike Enzi, who's a Republican from Wyoming, retired. And Pat Roberts, who's a longstanding member, Republican from Kansas, retired. And so we still can see some some movement in, in the finance committee um, composition overall, but there is you know brand new leadership, and I think particularly with Ron Wyden, who's very interested in this mark to market proposal, um, in addition to obviously putting forth you know the Biden proposals that we're going to talk about, um, he has his own ideas about taxation, and so it'll be very interesting to see um, you know what he puts forth as priorities as chairman. And, and could you elaborate a little on that? So what, what we know about what Wyden and his his mark-to-market proposal and, and his general thinking on, on, especially on business tax? Sure. So, I mean, I think obviously um, uh, Senator Wyden was a big critic of TCJA, um, be, having been excluded from the process and very critical of the international provisions. And so I would think, you know, particularly the Biden proposals that relook at guilty, for example, um, are going to be of interest to him. Um, outside of TCJA opposition, if you will, 
center um, widen has long championed what's known as a mark to market proposal that basically would uh, impose uh, an annual tax on the appreciation of you know stocks bonds other investments and so instead of you know kind of deferring taxation until there's a realization event such as the disposition of a stock there'd be kind of an annual tax on the appreciation which he also would impose at ordinary income rates as opposed to a preferential capital gains rates um, the idea is to basically treat appreciation as wages in that they're kind of taxed on a current basis. Um, it is a very difficult, and I think his white paper shows that it is a very difficult proposal to implement. And, and whereas it may be easy with respect to, you know, valuing publicly traded stocks, very difficult to do with respect to, you know, non-tradable property, such as, you know, real estate or interest in, in private companies, that there have to be some type of regime or interest charge, you know, set up for it to, to handle the deferral issue. And so it's something that he's had, had out for a long time and has been of concern to taxpayers. Uh, particularly because of you know these very difficult issues with res respect to scope and application but it's becoming more real because it's such a significant priority for him he's now chairman of the finance committee the democrats control the house and they control the white house and so people are going to be spending a lot more time on it yeah and i might add that um there at the aba's mid-year meeting we did have comments from a staffer on finance committee that we can expect to see a draft of the mark to market proposals soon. <laughs> so I'll leave it to our listeners to determine when soon might be, but it is to Mark's point, certainly a priority and it's gotten much more momentum now under the current circumstances. One thing I will add is that, you know, I mean, Senator Wyden, who's, I mean, this is his second stint as chairman, although his first stint was, was very, very short. Um, you know, very much uh, um, uh, a reputation as a serious legislator, likes to get in the weeds, very much a wonk, a tax wonk. Um, so and this mark to market proposal, which you really has sunk his teeth in, really kind of brings that to bear that he's he's willing to di dive into this more technical tax policy issue. So um, and I think it just kind of goes to his I mean, reputation. Mm -hmm. And what about, uh, I, I take it there are also with the, the change in, in uh, the sort of post-election changes, there'll also be changes to the composition of the Ways and Means Committee. Are those, are those at all meaningful or <clears throat> notable in any way? They, they are meaningful, um, you know, perhaps not as dramatic, you know, given that Democrats maintain control of the House, and so Chairman Neal is staying on the committee. You know, staying as chairman of the committee, and Representative Brady from Texas will be the ranking member. There are a fair amount of new members coming on to the committee, but it is a very large committee. Um, but I think, you know, in particular, I think the House politics, and I'd be interested in Jorge and Lauren's reaction, are going to be very interesting this year. Um, you know, two thirds of the Republicans voted against the election results after the Capitol attack. And so I think, you know, is there going to be regular order? How are the parties going to interact with one another is really yet to be seen. Or will they, you know, you know, how will committee meetings work? Will there be bipartisan introduction of bills? But, you know, that vote and the, the impact of it, I think, is, is yet to be seen, but could be significant on how the House operates. Yeah, I agree. I think um, 
we're just going to have to wait and see. There are a lot of political factors that have nothing to do with tax that are impacting the way that both parties are kind of carrying on their business, um, let alone how they will interact with each other with respect to um, any legislation, any hopes of bipartisan legislation. We'll, we'll just have to see. Yeah, and, and I think that that same issue can also be applied. You know, that the same issue kind of those those external political factors, right? Which, which you know, how are they going to impact tax policy making over the next year? Um, that that's also arising, obviously, on the Senate as well, right? Um, they're about to undertake um, an impeachment trial in the Senate, right? So the question would be, how does that carry over to the work of of Chairman Wyden and 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 Senator Crapo as well? Well, let's talk about the the Senate for a second. I mean, now that um, n- now that the Democrats have this very slim majority, uh, that brings brings up the issue of of the the filibuster. So maybe we could start with uh, someone giving a, a short primer on on the filibuster. I know this is we're we're all becoming technocrats in this day and age, but maybe we could talk a little bit about what that what that means. We should leave it to the Senate, former Senate staffer to uh, Absolutely. talk about the filibuster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, sure. <laughs> Happy to do it. The filibuster. Um, the filibuster, obviously, is you know that's that's what makes the Senate the Senate, right? This, any senator can 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 object to any legislation passing uh, by by a simple majority threshold, and for for you to overcome that objection, you need sixty a sixty vote margin. Um, so. That's been used, I think, more and more throughout the years, right? And, and I think that's, um, that's, you know, 60 vote margin has been pretty much um, um, the norm, um, obviously, you know, absent budget of reconciliation. Um, but but that's, that 60 vote margin is the norm and what's, and what's made the Senate what it is now. Um, but there's been a lot of talk. Uh, last year, there was a lot of talk about um, um, suspending or doing away with, with the filibuster. Um, so you remember that from the campaign trail last year, um, president Biden, you know, the the campaign trail kind of kept his powder dry for the most part, um, um, on the issue. Um, but a lot of Democrats, a lot of, um, constituencies important to the, to the democratic party were really putting pressure to, to undo the filibuster. Um, so there was a block of centrist Senate Democrats who raised some reservations about that, uh, primarily Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia, who essentially said, no, I mean, I'm not going to go along with this, right? I'm not going to go along with undoing the filibuster. So that's kind of where we're at now. Um, you know, where are, you know, I think, you know, incoming Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer um, you know, I think for the most part, has put this issue on pause. Um, I think that they're going to try to reach bipartisan consensus, and you're 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 seeing it right now, um, as we speak, trying to reach. You know, I think President Biden is is hosting um, uh, ten Republican senators, um, um, you know, at the White House on on this next COVID relief package. So, so you're you're going to see a genuine attempt from the president and and Chuck Schumer to try to reach bipartisan consensus. That said, I think if, if that if you know if if if, if Senator if Senate if, Senate, if Democratic offers um, uh, you know fall to the wayside and 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 and, and just get rejected, um, you know over and over, um, I think that's going to put pressure on Chuck Schumer to again do away with the filibuster. So 
Um, I think it's on pause for now, but I think it's, um, I would say it's, it's still um, that the last chapter on the issue has not been written yet. But obviously, you know, I, I welcome the feedback of my colleagues, Mark and Lauren. Sure. Well, I think um, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think the filibuster rule has, um, you know, now operates as not originally intended when it, it was put in place and is a real bar to, to legislation moving in the Senate, but used by, by you know, the kind of the 60 vote supermajority used by both parties to block legislation over time. I agree with Jorge. I mean, I think the signals are right now, despite calls from progressives to do away with the filibuster rule, there isn't support among, you know, the more conservative, moderate, you know, Senate Democrats like Joe Manchin. And so I think you will see these bipartisan efforts. They're also, and I know Lauren and Jorge can talk about it, there's the ability to use reconciliation to, you know, have, you know, targeted uh, 51 vote legislation. Um, and so that takes some pressure off the filibuster issue. But I agree with Jorge, there'll be these bipartisan efforts, there'll be legislation that's done through reconciliation. Um, but there may reach a frustrating point where the Joe Manchins of the world feel that there isn't the ability you know, to, to accomplish the agenda and restart rethinking the filibuster rule. But in thinking, you know, thinking about doing away the filibuster rule, you know, folks have to think about what happens when they're in the minority and there is, you know, just, you know, without a filibuster rule, the Senate operates like the House and a simple majority um, takes the day. And so getting rid is is not a, it's not just a short-term thing to benefit one party. And so there are there's the ability, obviously, in the short term to move your agenda, but there are longer term implications that, that have to be carefully considered. And so the use of reconciliation, the fact that also Democrats can have two reconciliation vehicles in, in the 2021 calendar year may temper um, efforts to, again, go after the filibuster rule. And can you explain yeah. sort of why it is that reconciliation is an end run around around, around the filibuster, <laughs> Lauren? Well, I don't know if it's an end run. It's just another another mechanism for passage of legislation, but it is equivalent the equivalent of not having the filibuster rule in the Senate, and that you just need a simple majority to pass legislation. That being said, passing a bill through reconciliation is not easy. Um, so mechanically, what will happen is that um, the budget committee, when there's a budget resolution, and Mark alluded to the fact that there can be two in calendar year 2021, because the prior Congress didn't pass a budget resolution for fiscal year 2021, which is the fiscal year we're currently in. So there will be a budget resolution for FY 2021. There will be one later this year for FY 2022. Those are the two opportunities to write reconciliation instructions into the budget um, to each of the committees for which um, over um, the sub who have subject matter jurisdiction over whatever it is you're trying to pass through reconciliation. So right now the talk as as Jorge alluded to is is uh, whether or not the COVID relief package will pass on a bipartisan basis or through reconciliation. The procedural rules with regard to reconciliation are are very strict. Uh, you have to have um, the, the provisions can't increase the deficit outside of a 10-year budget window. That's the main constraint. Um, there are also issues of germaneness um, to the instructions. The parliamentarian will be involved in, in decisions about what can go in the bill and what can't. And on top of all that, there is no room for defection. So the Democrats on the Senate side have a, a, a the true definition of a simple majority 
one vote will break the tie. And then even on the House side, there are not that many um, members who create a, a, a supermajority, as it were, on the um, on the House side. There are only 11. I think it's 222 to 211, something like that. Um, so, you know, very slim majority on the House side as well. So apart from the procedural constraints, there are also policy considerations to make such that you have to get everyone on board. And that operates to kind of temper some of the bigger uh, policy goals that, that have been outlined. And we should, we would be remiss if we didn't mention, however, that that the TCJA did itself <laughs> pass <laughs> through through reconciliation. So, so it is it is possible to to achieve significant tax changes through through reconciliation. It, it is absolutely possible. The ACA, the healthcare bill, was passed through reconciliation. It is absolutely possible, uh, but you have to be very disciplined about the policy and the provisions that are going to go in, um, and make sure that everyone is on board. And, and that's where you get to. Um, your tempered asks because you've got to accommodate more progressive members and more moderate members. You know, I would but Lauren, that- Lauren, you were on the on the Hill, um, you know, and worked on TCJA, and arguably wasn't TCJA harder to do through reconciliation than arguably what would be contemplated by the Biden administration because TCJA had a lot of significant tax relief. And so that issue of not, you know, increasing the deficit after 10 years was a big issue for your fo- you folks in putting together that bill. If we look for Biden looking to use tax increases to fund other policy initiatives, um, when you're raising taxes, you know, that 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 isn't, you know, the limitation on increasing the deficit, you know, by definition is not an issue. And so if TCJA could get through reconciliation, it strikes me that a reconciliation package focused on non-tax priorities paid for with tax increases will still be a challenge, but not as big a challenge as kind of a, more, as a kind of a tax reform vehicle like TCJA. Right. I think that's true. I mean, the name is Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. There were a lot of reductions to tax rates and um, other provisions that that cost money. And so it's harder outside of the budget uh, window to to not incur a deficit. Um, That being said, you know, President Biden, who wants to um, have significant spending provisions and then, you know, maybe ostensibly account for those um, spending measures with tax increases, there's still going to be, I think, a fair amount of opposition, depending on what those increases are. Um, and it's going to operate so as to temper some of the spending, because I don't think that there's going to be the ability, for example, with the corporate rate, to raise it to the full 28% that's envisioned. And so that means that some of the spending that they're counting on from this 7% corporate rate hike is going to have to be cut back to to account for the actual rate hike that businesses and and other legislators think is really feasible. So we'll see. But you're right, Mark. I think the the point is it's a lot easier to do when you're not cutting taxes. So maybe we could sort of close this out by talking about what we think that what what we actually would expect to see the Democrats get done in in uh, the recon- via the reconciliation process, and 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 I'm sort of want to limit this to the the business tax sphere rather than sort of the broader what's going to happen on individual taxes. I mean, Lauren, you sort of prognosticated there about the not being able to get to the 28% rate. So what do we what do we think will happen 
via reconciliation. Jorge, you want to you want to take a guess? <laughs> sure. I mean, I think on the table is 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 obviously increasing the corporate tax rate, right? That's been that's almost like low hanging fruit for a lot of Democrats, and in, in terms of kind of uh, um, it having consensus. Um, so I think that's on the table. Um, obviously, you know, I think you're you're going to see more economic incentives around COVID as well, um, whether it's incentives for businesses, you know, large and small. Um, I think that um, the, that the administration is kind of as an intake um, mode right now in terms of you know ideas for um, around um, you know how to jumpstart you know the economy. It is interesting that you know in in this first Biden administration COVID relief package, you you, you don't see much talk about raising taxes and and making it um, revenue neutral, right? Any tax provisions. So um, it, it, I think it's interesting to follow how long that holds, but. Um, I think that you'll, 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 and also a big emphasis, obviously, on middle class tax cuts as well, right? A lot of talk about expanding the child tax credit, the EITC, um, and I think that's going to continue to to be an emphasis. I think looking down the line, I think, you know, which has implications on the tax side is also um, also infrastructure as well, right? You know, infrastructure investment has been around. Um, it's, it's, it's a topic that kicked gets kicked around the hill for a long time. Um, Republican support, Democratic support, but one often wonders why hasn't someone, um, something passed. But I, I do think this is an issue that um, that uh, President Biden really cares about. Um, so infrastructure tax issues could, could, cer- could certainly be at the forefront in the second half of the year as well. Is it still, I, I, I haven't checked, is it still infrastructure week? I didn't look at my <laughs> calendar. Yeah. <laughs> Mark, Lauren, what do you guys think about what else might go through? I think um, in thinking about it from a business tax perspective, I think it's important to recognize that it's not, you know, going to be a tax reform exercise, you know, kind of Lauren handled in TCJA, but largely one of tax increases. And I think businesses are going to need to be on the defensive. I think there may be some opportunities for tax relief, but I think it's mostly going to be, unfortunately, tax increases. I anticipate them as part of this kind of second reconciliation package for FY 2022, which, you know, you're likely talking the fall, but I think we'll start seeing hopefully with the Treasury Green Book some indication of, of you know, more detail on some of the proposals like the minimum tax that Biden talked about on the campaign trail. I think one thing that's very important is that because they're going to be handled, you know, towards the end of the year, the risk that they're retroactive to the beginning of 2021, I think goes down significantly. I think it's something for taxpayers to be sensitive to and be aware of. Um, but I think the trend of having you know, it being considered later in the year um, where retroactive, retroactivity looks you know, particularly untoward, I think is helpful. But I think really important to, you know, I think effective date discussions are going to be really important and something to watch in addition to the substance of the the tax increases themselves. And and Lauren, what do you think on the international tax front? I mean there there are several elements of this that touch on things that happen in TCJA. That is true and uh, international tax provisions are, are somewhat of a perennial favorite when we start talking about raising revenue. Um, President Biden on the campaign trail was very vocal about proposals to modify guilty, in particular, uh, raising the guilty rate, 
eliminating the uh, QBI exemption, doing a country by country analysis for the amount of the inclusion. Um, in addition, I, we heard from a Democratic uh, Ways and Means staffer last week that the committee is, is really focusing a lot of attention on these onshoring, offshoring carrot stick ideas. Um, and credit for onshoring, um, manufacturing, and, and bringing jobs home, a surtax for offshoring um, activities, round tripping. Um, so I think that there's going to be a lot of attention paid to that. And to Mark's point, we will get more more color on these on these proposals in the forthcoming green book. I, I hope um, because there's still a lot to be fleshed out. There are implications for raising the guilty rate there with. Um, Fitty, you know, are we decoupling the the carrot and stick approach that's currently enacted um, with regard to to serving the foreign foreign markets, whether you do it here or abroad? What happens with respect to our negotiating position for pillars one and two at the OECD? There are a lot of implications for kind of domestic policy, um, both how the provisions interact with existing law and also what we're going to do on a larger scale with regard to um, international international tax reform. So a lot to keep in mind. Um, this will certainly be more in play the second half of this year and, and we will see how things develop. Yeah, I will just add that I think, you know, um, Mark and Lauren mentioned the Green Book and the campaign tax proposals, but I, I do think that the international tax proposals from the Biden campaign um, are really going to feature. And I think that's going to be an area where I think companies are really going to have to play defense um, I suspect when the Green Book comes out, um, you know, by April, I think international is really going to be top on their list. So um, as a revenue raiser. Um, so that's something that's going to be interesting to follow. Great. Well, thanks, everyone. I thought this was a, a really interesting discussion. Uh, to our listeners, uh, if you have any comments or suggestions for things that you'd like us to cover, please feel free to email us at podcasts at milchev.com that's podcasts plural at m-i-l-c-h-e-v.com uh thanks mark jorge lauren of course all right thank you thank you